For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, Aaron. Hey, you guys. Aaron, uh, you have uh, you have done something different this week, and I'm intrigued. So we have two guests this week. Uh, the first one is Tessie Castillo. She's a journalist from North Carolina. She was teaching a nonfiction workshop um, on death row in a prison in North Carolina and ended up putting together a book of the writing of um, four of the men on death row. One of them is George Wilkerson, and he is our other guest. Uh, so first I'll be talking to Tessie, and then we will be calling him on death row to uh, talk about the process of putting together the book, which is called Crimson Letters. That's uh, that's more logistics than we usually have uh, on our normal show. I'm glad you were able to put that together with her. Uh, there's actually a lot about logistics in the interview. There's a lot of logistics involved with uh, editing uh, in and out of prisons. So if you've ever wondered how that would work, this is the interview. Man, it is uh, fascinating. I cannot uh, wait to listen to this one. I haven't actually listened yet, and I'm looking forward to it. We are brought to you, as always, by MailChimp. Their support makes things like this episode possible, thanks to MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Tessie Castillo and George Wilkerson. Welcome, uh, Tessie Castillo. Thank you for having me. You've recently published uh, this book, Crimson Letters, which you co-authored with four men who are on death row in North Carolina, where you live. Yes. Can you just tell us a little bit about the genesis of this project and maybe what was going on in your life and career as you entered into this? Sure. Um, so before getting involved in this, I had nothing to do with the death penalty, never thought that I would be co-authoring a book with men who are on death row. My background, I was a journalist and worked mostly around drug and addiction issues. But in 2013, I went to a Super Bowl party and was kind of hanging out near the food because I don't really like football that much. And I met a guy who just wandered over, started talking to me. Turns out he was a psychologist who worked in the prison specifically with men on death row. And all of the people on death row in North Carolina are housed in the same prison, which is in Raleigh, uh, which is where I was living at the time. And I was fascinated by him and, and talking about what it was like in the prison. And he told me that they had recently gotten a new warden in that prison because previously no one from the outside, no volunteers were allowed inside of death row. It, it was a completely closed off area. But this new warden had opened it up for the first time, and he was letting volunteers in to teach writing classes, art classes, restorative justice classes, yoga classes. 
and I asked if I could sign up to teach a journaling class. So I applied with the prison and I ended up getting in and walked on to death row for the first time, which was really scary the first time. <laughs> I was just, I remember sitting in the classroom and waiting for the men. There were about 24 of them in my class and they all wear blood red jumpsuits to symbolize their, what they're in there for. And I was just like, oh, man, this sounded like a good idea at the Super Bowl party when I had had something to drink. But I don't know now. <laughs> Should I really be here? <laughs> had you taught journaling before at that point? Like, was this your first teaching experience or had you taught a class like this previous to On Death Row? No, I had taught. No. <laughs> this is your first journaling uh, experience. Yes. <laughs> It ended up being so cathartic because the journaling class was about journaling about their lives and their past and who they are. And so it was a way to get to know them and their backgrounds and what they care about and how they've changed since they've been on death row really quickly. So I got to know these guys really well and was just amazed at the level of insight, at the level of reform that has taken place. Most of the guys in my class had been on death row already for 20 or 30 years. So they were just completely transformed men. And so I decided that I wanted to share those experiences. So I wrote an op-ed to the local newspaper, basically saying that people in, on death row are not what we expect. They're not these mindless monsters who are incapable of changing or incapable of redemption. And when I published that in the local paper, I was dismissed from the prison and my class was canceled. So after that, I started writing to the guys uh, just back and forth. Wasn't thinking of a book at that point. We were just, I just wanted to stay in touch. I, I had met them and had been very touched by their experiences. And so we started writing letters and the same thing happened basically. I, I would just get these stacks and stacks of letters and they were so insightful. There was so much in them that spoke to, to just the depths of humanity that we had in common that I felt an obligation to share that also with the world. And since I'd already been kicked out of the prison, they couldn't do anything else to me. So I proposed writing a book, uh, compiling these letters and essays into a book and that's how we published Crimson Letters in March 2020. I want to zoom back to your background as a journalist and how you got involved in reporting on addiction and whether those experiences in any way informed this book itself. Sure. My original uh, foray into addiction and journalism was also by accident. <laughs> I also was, started at Super Bowl party. <laughs> <laughs> I was unemployed and uh, answering a Craigslist ad. They were looking for someone to take a large rubber vagina and to go behind the Home Depot department store and teach sex ed basically to the, the migrant farm workers who were back there waiting for jobs. Uh, so that's what I did. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm literally, my brain is still just unpacking this image. Okay. You respond to a Craigslist ad. Yes. And they say, we want you to take a rubber vagina yeah. and teach sex ed to day laborers at a Home Depot. Yes. Um, whose, whose program was that? <laughs> so and and to was, what ends? It was a public health program. 
Um, and it was a, an agency that I ended up working for for 10 years. And they teach uh, sex ed and also drug education to different groups that are hard to reach. So I started with teaching sex ed to the farm workers. I speak Spanish, so I was able to do that. And then after that, I started learning about drugs and how to prevent overdoses or to prevent HIV. And so I got involved in that work. It ended up turning into a, a lobbying gig. I went from behind the Home Depot with the vagina to lobbying at the legislature for, for new laws. And so I would say that even though I had nothing to do with the death penalty, I was learning a lot about the justice system and how it works and more specifically how it doesn't work. And I learned to confront a lot of groups that I had previously had a lot of stereotypes about. For example, I worked very heavily with people who are addicted to drugs, uh, even people who sell drugs. I work with people who are sex workers. And all of these groups I, I had never really had interactions with before and had some negative stereotypes about. And the more I got to know the people individually and understood how they got to where they were, the more I, I liked them and the more my my own misconceptions were challenged and the more I wanted to help change the systems that often push people in that direction. So I went into death row with some of that mindset that I, I thought I would probably see something I wouldn't expect. And that's exactly what happened. I'm curious, like your strategy in a situation like that, whether you're on the block for the first time with um, death row prisoners, a group that you've never interacted with, or you're at Home Depot interacting with a very different group. What do you signal when you put yourself into a situation like that? How do you earn people's trust? How do you be clear about what your intentions are and, and where you're coming from? So I usually start out by telling people exactly what I'm there for and what my intentions are. And I do a lot of listening. I've learned that people will trust you more if you listen to them rather than going in with some agenda. I try to stay very cognizant of, I guess, the temperature in the room, if you will, and, and try to know when to speak and when not to speak, to sense whether people are trusting me or not. And it just takes time. It takes a lot of time to build up trust. I didn't go into the room on death row and have everybody instantly trust me. In fact, even when I first proposed the idea of the book to the guys. At this point, I had been corresponding with them for a couple of years. And you would think they would know me really well. But as soon as I proposed the idea, one of them just flat out said he'd never speak to me again. <laughs> like, how dare you try to, he thought I was trying to exploit him, that I was going to take his story and run and make money off of it. So it took a while to build up uh, trust with him again. He ended up being one of the four co-authors who finished the book. Uh, so I think just time and transparency and listening and never pushing your agenda, always making sure that they understand that they have the agency to leave the situation whenever they want to. Can you tell me about the decision? So you, you have a background both in advocacy and lobbying and what you were doing within the prison, at least until you got kicked out, was somewhat akin to a uh, nonfiction teacher, you know, uh, what someone does in an MFA program. And there's a lot of different routes this book could have gone. 
why do it this way with co-authors and with this sort of kaleidoscopic vision of multiple voices? Tell me about that as a concept for how to do this. Sure. I think to me, the most important thing is that I want other people to see what I see, which is that the men on death row are human beings and they're incredibly intelligent and insightful and they have so many redemptive qualities. There's so much that I've learned from them in just being friends with them. Sometimes they talk me into making a mature decision when I'm making an immature one. (laughs) And I don't think that I, just attempting to write about my relationships with them or my experience with them could really convey that as well as if they get their own voice out there. So I wanted this book to be a platform for them and for their voices. And that's also why when we do these kind of interviews that I have them call in so that you can talk to them directly instead of just speaking to me about the book. Um, That's really what it's all about for me. I want other people to see their humanity and I want them to be the messengers for that because I think that they're the best messengers. We're going to call George um, in a second, your co-author, but I wonder if you could just you know, describe, like, I, I think we're going to be talking to him like 15 minutes at a time. Like what have the challenges of what have your been, been your experiences of promoting this book alongside your co-authors? It's really challenging. Um, for example, they can only call for 15 minutes at a time from the prison. I cannot call them and I can't pass messages easily into the prison. There's only two ways that I can get messages into the prison. I can write a letter and who knows how long it will take for that to show up. Usually there's not even enough time before the podcast or the event. Or what I usually do and what I did today (laughs) is that I will text the mother of one of my co-authors and then when they call their mom and some of them call their mom every day, then the message will pass through the mother The other problem is that uh, there's only one phone still that they have access to and they have to share it with everyone else in the prison. So in order for them to be available at a certain time, they have to make sure that everyone else knows you can't use the phone during this time. And that can be difficult too, just with the interpersonal relationships between other men on death row. There's over 140 of them who have loved ones they want to call too. So it's a constant negotiation. <laughs> We're going to try to talk to George now for 15 minutes, hang up, and then talk to him for another 15 minutes. Is that right? Yes. Okay, let's do it. All right, here he is. Hello. Hey, how are you doing? Good. I'm here with Aaron from Longform, so I'll patch you right in, okay? It should be in the meeting if you want to let him in now. Hello, uh, George, can you hear me? Yes. How you doing, man? I'm uh, great. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank you. Maybe we could start, George, by um, having you just talk about how you got involved um, with this book, like how you started with the writing program. Okay. Back in 2013, I think, uh, a guy named Dr. Coons came to death row and started offering a number of classes and workshops, the first of which was 
a writing class, uh, and he had posted a memo for it, and it was called, um, the theme was writing from captivity, so I actually had no interest in writing. I'm more of a, a an artist, a visual artist, but I'm also a spiritual person, so I just really sensed that God was moving me to sign up for this writing class, which I had no interest in. Uh, so I signed up and um, ended up falling in love with writing, uh, and after that first uh, semester, I think Tessie came in and started offering a writing workshop, uh, a journaling class, actually. And um, I didn't sign up for that one because I was in the other writing class. And um, she ended up getting kicked out, I think, several months into her term here. And I actually was trying to get into her class like the week before she got kicked out. So I've actually never interacted with Tessie in person. But I knew some of the other guys who were here who were been in her class and uh, were talking about how she had reached out to them and they were bouncing her around an idea to uh, write a book about our experiences because I think Tessie's perspective about prisoners and prison in general had like transformed through her experiences and interactions with us here. So I was like, well, that sounds like a great project to be a part of. And so I asked some of the guys who knew Tessie to reach out to her and ask if I could be a part of it in any way. And so that's kind of how we connected right there is she was like, sure. And we started corresponding and writing back and forth and bouncing around ideas. And the book just sort of emerged from all of our, not just mine and Tessie's, but all of us who interact with her. Tessie, when you started thinking about doing the book, what was your prompt for people to write from? Like, what did you say you wanted people to write? I didn't give them very specific prompts. I asked them to tell their story. And I wasn't specific about whether I wanted them to talk about childhood or life in prison or, or what angle for a story to go with. I, I just allowed them to choose whatever topics and threads that they wanted, which ended up great because we have four very diverse uh, topics. Each of the co-authors is a different race, a different religion, different background, and they all uh, chose different angles to write about. So I, I really like the diversity that we ended up with. George, once you became a part of the project and, you know, as you became interested in writing, what did you find yourself wanting to write about? I think there were just a lot of times in my life where I was confused about what was going on because I kind of feel like, man, I was a pinball. Like my life was just, I was just reacting, just bouncing from one thing to another. And I, I feel like I had little control or comprehension of what was going on. And so now being here, uh, and looking back and thinking on things, I was like, well, maybe it's time for me to actually face some of these experiences I had gone through. And so for me, writing was maybe like a form of conversation with myself or with my past, uh, maybe like therapy. And so I just chose these periods in my life that I didn't really understand and that were just really powerful and impactful to me. And I just sat down and started writing about them and trying to understand them and make peace with them. And from that came, you know, some of the essays are published in that book, but, you know, a lot of my poetry and other essays and art have just sort of flowed from just that drive, I guess. Tessie, when people started submitting stuff and, and you started 
kind of understanding like who was going to be in the book. Um, what was the editing process for these pieces like? It was the same way that my pieces are usually edited. I would critique the pieces that they sent. I didn't generally change the writing itself. The, my edits are very minimal. The writing that you see, that's their writing and they're all incredible writers. But I would offer broader suggestions. Sometimes, oh, this part is really strong. Maybe you can write a little bit more about this topic or oh, I think that you got repetitive over here. You might think of cutting that section. And then I would send back those suggestions to them and then they would rewrite the whole thing by hand uh, and then send it back to me and I would do the same thing again. So it was a very long snail mail process. In the beginning, we didn't even have access to phones because there were no phones on death row until 2016, which was after we started the book project. Prior to that, uh, people on death row could only use the phone once a year for 10 minutes. Was this experience of getting to talk to yourself and, and getting to review your life in this way, George, like, is this encouraged by the people who run the prison? Are these like, is going through this process of becoming a writer and artist, is that something that there's any support for, or is it frowned upon by the authorities? Well, uh, in general, I think, I'd say the administration, the prison administration, doesn't mind if we write about stuff as long as it's not about the prison, um, you know, because there are a lot of things that go on uh, in the justice system that are that need fixing. So not just in the prison system, but uh, and so like if we write about those types of things, then we end up getting persecuted or retaliated against, or just uh, you know they they really frown upon it and do things to hinder that process, whether it be rejecting the book so that I can't have a copy or uh, my mail disappearing or my mail getting delayed or just a variety of things, you know, them coming to shake me down and stuff getting messed up or guys getting put in a hole under investigation or whatever and their property being seized. It's just a whole slew of tactics that they employ. But if I'm just writing about, you know, personal stuff that has nothing to do with the prison system or the justice system, then, you know, they pretty much leave that alone. Tessie, as you were overseeing this project with four different co-authors, was that a consideration for you? You know, what people write potentially getting them in trouble? I mean, you already had the experience of something you wrote about your experiences um, getting you banned. I wonder how you navigated all that. That was really tricky. It was something we discussed at length because they could be retaliated on in a number of different ways, including solitary confinement. And of course, I didn't want that to happen. So with each of them, we discussed the possibility, are you willing to move forward with this project anyways, regardless of what could potentially happen? And the four men who ended up completing the project are the ones who said yes, I think this is important enough. I need to get my voice out there and I will do that regardless of the consequences. And there were signs along the way that the prison wasn't happy with us. They wouldn't allow me to send the manuscript to them. So when I sent them the full manuscript for them to actually read over so they could see all of it because they up until then had never seen the entire book, only their own sections, the prison rejected that. And then of course, when the book itself came out, they banned it. 
confiscated it from my co-authors and uh, they won't allow the book in the prison. Is banning books in prison common? Like George, I wonder if you could speak to what it's like being a, a reader on death row and what's available to you, what's not available. Well, this is one of those areas where we have like an ongoing battle with the prison system because there are clear rules and criteria for which they can use to ban books. And, and typically it's uh, common sense stuff. Like if I try to get a book on lock picking, obviously, you know, that's the type of book they would ban and that's in the rules. Or if I try to get pornography or something like that, or something that's about promoting violence, uh, you know, that's the type of material that is in the policy and it's common sense stuff. But like I said, with stuff like this, with the book, they have a way of, twisting the interpretation of the policy and making it fit uh, whatever it is that they want to reject. So say, for example, when Tessie tried to mail us the manuscript, they rejected it first because it did not come from an approved publisher or distributor. Well, we appealed the decision and said, well, it's not actually a book. It's just a manuscript. It has not been published. And as a matter of fact, it's our book. We wrote it. So I have the same material basically in my room is handwritten, but hers is typed. And um, so then they came back and it's like, well, okay, you're right about that, but now we're rejecting it because it had a spiral binding on it and you can't have the little spiral thing on the manuscript. So I said, okay. So I had that mailed out to one of my friends and I had my friend remove the spiral binding and then just Xerox the manuscript and send me the Xerox back of the manuscript and they rejected it again saying that I was trying to sneak in material that had previously been rejected. So that's an an example of some of the ways that they were determined to uh, reject a piece and they did what they wanted to do to make that happen. And does that mean that you still have not gotten to see a completed manuscript of the book? I did end up seeing it uh, because it took them, I think, maybe a week once we had received the books uh, before they confiscated them and uh, banned them. They let them in initially. Uh, so I read it. As soon as I got the book, I just went on and spent the next day reading the book from cover to cover. I think I read it one time all the way through. Then I read my stuff, you know, just checking it for um, any typos or anything like that that might be. You have 60 seconds remaining. But then they came around and confiscated the book. So I did get to see it and hold the book in my hand for about a week. I just heard the uh, 60-second remaining thing. Should we restart another 15 minutes, Desi? Yeah, he'll have to call back again. Okay. Okay. Okay, I'll call right back. Thank you, George. I I think this is the highest degree of difficulty publication process of anyone I've talked to on the show. Yeah. Yeah, we went through a lot, and that's not even all of it. As far as writing the book, dealing with five different authors, and we couldn't sit down in a room together and hash out the issues. So every time there was a question to be had, because I tried to be very um, democratic about the process of creating the book and transparent, so it wasn't just me who made all the decisions. Every time there was a decision about, oh, are we going to self-publish? Are we going to look for a publisher? Which publisher are we going to go with? Is this chapter going to be in or not? Those kinds of questions. Oh, my God. (laughs) took months to answer a single question. Okay, he's calling back. Uh, George, do we have you back there? Yes. Great. Um, Tessie and I were just 
discussing the difficulties of working with multiple authors who um, can't just uh, pick up their iPhone and call each other. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that, George, what it was like working on this as a group project with other authors making decisions. And also, I was actually not sure, like, are the other authors of this book people that you've ever met, George, or what is your interaction level with the co-authors? Yeah, I actually do know every one of the other guys. And um, for a period there, like I said, from 2013, I think, until 2016 or 17, I can't remember when they shut the classes down. But during that period, the other co-authors and I all really got pretty close in the sense that we all participated in the classes together. We um, interacted probably two or three times a week. But after that, they shut the classes down. And so two of the guys are on a different floor. And uh, one of the other co-authors and I are on the same floor. So by us being on the same floor but on different pods, we go to meals together. We go to recreation together. And that's about it. So we see each other for a few minutes a day, and we can interact. The other co-author and I. But as far as to the first part of your question, I think Tessie had the hard part. Well, I don't think I know that Tessie had the hard part because she was the intermediary, the one, you know, she was the nexus of everything. So I dealt mostly with Tessie. She and I had our uh, back and forth correspondence and and she would uh, basically compile all of our answers and then, you know, distribute those comments back to the rest of us in a sense of like, you know, this is the consensus uh, about where we stand on any given decision. That part right there, as far as the planning and organizing, I didn't have much difficulty with that. Uh, Tessie did. But as far as like writing from here, as you say, it's really hard because everything has to be done by hand. Anytime we make a mistake, I have to rewrite it, maybe even rewrite a whole page or sometimes rewrite the entire essay just to make whatever corrections need to be made. So it's really labor-intensive and tedious to do that. Uh, There's always a risk that a piece might get confiscated during a shakedown or something might mess up, so I have to make duplicates of everything also by hand. So it was just a a long and tedious process. But actually, I'm kind of grateful for it because I think it slowed me down enough to really force me to think through uh, what I wanted to write since so much work had to go into everything that I wrote. Was that something you were sharing notes on with your co-authors, like the logistical process of working through the manuscript by hand? Like, uh, I'm curious, like, yeah. as a team, how you, how you decided to handle that kind of stuff? Well, I think uh, in terms of all that, we all here sort of took that for granted. Like, this is the way that it is. Uh, so it was kind of like we didn't really have to discuss those elements of it. Um, you know, we'd moan and groan about it. Uh, but we all, you know, would do what, whatever needed to be done. But we didn't have to, like, give each other advice or tactics as the best way to do it because we had all, we all had our own rhythms and workspace and scheduling. And, you know, some guys would get up and, and do everything throughout the day. And then they'd spend two or three hours in the evening to write. Where me, I'd get up at four in the morning and do some of my stuff early in the day. But we all essentially had to do it the same way when it came to sitting down and and writing it out by hand. So there wasn't really much we could say to each other in that sense, except, hey, don't let us down. Do what you said you're going to do. Uh, Don't give up. We keep each other encouraged, basically. What was your experience of both 
reading about your co-authors experiences and having them read about your life, about some pretty intimate details of your childhood and um, your family. I'm curious about that exchange of openness. Well, for the most part, we were all familiar with one another's stories, even though we didn't actually read them until they were in the book. But we, like I said, had participated in so many of the other activities together, like writing classes, poetry workshops, debate, uh, Toastmasters. So we had been pretty well versed in telling our stories to each other and challenging each other to dig deeper and to talk about sensitive stuff and, you know, to really just explore who we were and why we were. And in that, we also learned how to listen and to sit with one another's uh, stories uh, without as, with as little judgment as possible. I'd like to say with no judgment, but that'd be too idealistic and misrepresenting what actually happened because there was some judgment sometimes. We'd get offended. We'd piss each other off with some of the things that we'd said, and, but we stuck it out and we worked through these things as a group. It was like therapy, I guess. Uh, but we learned a lot about each other because I think most of us didn't really interact with each other prior to those classes because, you know, we being here is like being in high school in some ways because we click up. But this kind of got us out of our comfort zones, and we started seeing each other as three-dimensional people rather than one-dimensional characters. So as Tessie describes her transformation, in terms of her perspective, we all also went through that same process here. Uh, because even though we're here on death row, we still had a lot of misperceptions about each other and prejudices and biases and stuff. Tessie, I wonder if you could, I mean, uh, George just described it as um, therapy. And if it is therapy and you were in some ways in the therapist role, you know, in terms of getting people to both open up and feel like this was like a, a worthwhile thing to do. I wonder if you could talk about what you felt like worked as the therapist journaling instructor and and as you moved into the book phase like what was your strategy for making this work oh that's a really hard question um it was extremely challenging along the process it, it took us four years to finish this book together and at almost every single one of us myself included at some point along that process either quit this book project or threaten to quit. <laughs> yeah, George, you might be the only one who didn't. <laughs> um, but we even had one co-author who we lost because there were originally five. So it, it was, yeah, there were so many highs and lows and getting through those points where either we were losing a co-author or had lost a co-author and to try to get that person back on board or me when I almost quit, which was at least twice, right, George? Yeah. Uh, it was actually George who convinced me to get back on board and called me, and he sort of guilt tripped me into it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just reminded me how much the co-authors were looking to me for for hope that someone on the outside actually cared and could follow through with a project like this, and how much I would let them down if I quit. So that was how the strategy of getting me back on board was sort of making me feel guilty. <laughs> but that is not a strategy that I employed for the others. Whenever anybody quit or almost quit, 
I always let them. I never tried to convince them to come back on board. I said, if this is not what you want to do, um, if you're uncomfortable with this, if you don't think you'll be able to finish, then that's fine. You do you. And I just left them alone. And uh, all but one eventually came back. They sort of stewed over things for a while. Generally, they were upset about a specific thing, a specific topic that uh, we were disagreeing on. Because what would often happen is there was something in the book that we needed to discuss about maybe a chapter to include or not include. And so I would send out letters to all four guys and say, hey, there, here's the issue at hand. Can you let me know what you think? And they would all send back four different opinions. And sometimes there would have very strong opinions that were total opposites. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I would sometimes like have to agree with one or two of them and tell the others, I'm sorry, we didn't choose what you wanted. And then they were, ah, you know, they would get all upset, <laughs> threatened to quit. So those kind of things happened, but I think always giving them agency and making sure that they understood that this was not forced, that um, they could do this or not do this and that they would be loved and accepted no matter what they chose when they stayed. George, I wonder if you could talk about like one of those like editorial decisions, like both like what it's like making an editorial decision in a vacuum like that, where you can't have a face-to-face discussion with someone. And, and what were yeah. the things that, that mattered to you and your co-authors? What, what were the things that people were passionate about and, and were willing to quit over potentially? Well, I think one thing that became clear is that every one of us is so strong-willed and determined. And so every little issue uh, was an issue worth dying for, so to speak, uh, because we are so invested. Every one of us invested so much of ourselves into it. And I think it honestly it boiled down just to that basic principle of I have put so much of myself into this. I'm determined to see this project through. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how the sacrifices I've made. I can't believe that you're going to go against me on this. And so everyone kind of had that same basic attitude. And so when it came down to those editorial decisions, we ultimately realized, look, we can't all have our way. We're all different and we all have a story to tell, but our stories have to work together to tell the bigger story. Um, you know, because up until we started making editorial decisions, everyone was just contributing their story to a bigger project. Um, you know, I guess maybe we weren't really thinking about how all these pieces had to ultimately fit together to make a bigger thing, a higher order concept, which is the book. And so that was, I think, uh, at the heart of it. It wasn't any one particular thing. It was just this was so important to each of us that we were unwilling to bend for a while. There were some specific things, like one of the biggest topics of contention that probably caused the most quitting was what chapter would go last. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was the biggest. I I didn't think that the book would make it when that came up because it was just too difficult to get people to agree or understand. You have 60 seconds remaining. But we made it. (laughs) All right, George, we're on our last seconds. So I'm just going to ask... what impact this had on your life participating in this? 
Wow, it's a, uh, for me, it's a game changer, I think, because we had had people in our lives come and say they wanted to help us, and they would start to help us, but when it got difficult, they would give up. You have 30 seconds remaining. No one has really seen things through to the end to stick a project out, and Tessie is the first person to do that, so she just really gave us that hope, like, hey, this is possible. There are people out there who care enough and who are driven enough to stick it out with us and help us to fight. So that's kind of giving everyone in here hope that, hey, it can be done, so just don't give up. George, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed the book. I think he's already gone. That was it? Okay. Tessie, uh, thank you uh, so much uh, for this interview. Where could people who who want to read this book find it? Where, where would you recommend buying it from? So you can buy the book on Amazon. It's also available on Audible. Um, I always recommend, if you can, to make an online order from a local bookstore. And particularly with the events that are going on right now across the country, I encourage people to order from a bookstore that's owned by a black or a brown uh, owner because they want to support those businesses. Oh, um, can I give a plug for my book club, actually? Of course. I have a book club where we read Crimson Letters together, and then we meet four times, and at each meeting, one of the co-authors calls in. How can people be a part of that? Um, you can find the book clubs and sign up on my website, which is tessiecastillo.com. Uh, there's a little tab for book club, and if you sign up there, it's completely free. And we'll meet four times, and at each meeting, one of the co-authors, the one who wrote the section that we're reading that meeting, will call in from prison, just like they're doing now, and get to discuss the section with you. You're really, uh, you're really tying up the uh, one phone quite a bit of the time there. Are, are you like a notorious <laughs> figure in the prison for your monopoly over the uh, phone hours? Um, so we have gotten some pushback, like one of the reasons that George could only call back twice because before he would call back, you know, four times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're starting to see limits imposed on the phone time. But for the most part, the other guys in the prison seem to understand the importance of what my co-authors are doing. And they've actually been very gracious in allowing them to use the phone. Uh, what are you going to do next? I don't know. I've, I've always been really, or not always, but over the past more than 10 years, uh, have been very passionate about criminal justice reform. So whatever I do, it will probably be somewhere in, in that. So maybe there's another book in my future, but I couldn't tell you what it is right now. Just trying to promote this one. <laughs> <laughs> right on. All right. Well, thank you so much. That was the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thank you very much to Tessie Castillo and George Wilkerson for making this episode happen with me. Thanks to our intern, Julianne Parker. Thanks to our sponsor, MailChimp, who makes this show possible. We'll be back next week. Thank you.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.